Chapter 4 of Cut by the County, or Grace Darnell, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Here's a pretty kettle of fish. Sir Alan's business in London did not remain long a mystery to his trusted friend. When the ladies had left the dining-room that evening, the two old comrades-in-arms drew their chairs to the hearth and lighted their cigarettes, and then came the hour of confidence. "'I dare say you all wondered what took us up to town in such a hurry this morning,' said Alan. "'Grace has an active imagination, and she exercised it vigorously between luncheon and five o'clock tea,' answered the colonel, laughing. "'But my sluggish old brain has not been much disturbed by the mystery. People think nothing of an eighty-mile journey to and fro by express. It would have been different if you had had to go in a dack.' "'I took Claire to see Sir Clarkson Andrews.' "'Indeed.' Yes, I have been anxious about her for a long time, and in spite of our family doctor's assurance that there was no cause for alarm, I determined to consult a first-rate physician. So, as this morning was particularly fine and I had no work to do at home, I persuaded her to go to Cavendish Square with me. I telegraphed for an appointment from Scadley, so there was no time lost. Sir Clarkson was kindness itself, had a long talk with my wife, assured me that there was nothing organically wrong, only a tendency to linger and low spirits, which might develop into something worse if we were not careful. He strongly recommended me to take Lady Darnell to Italy for the winter. I am to move her from place to place, give her plenty of change of scene, in a word, to do all in my power to amuse and interest her. I have no doubt Darnell Park is a charming place, but frankly now, Sir Alan, isn't it just a little dull, he asked. I admitted the fact. Of course, all parks are dull, he said, shut in from the outside world, a dignified seclusion. Very few neighbours within easy reach, I dare say. Very few whom Lady Darnell cares for, replied I. Just so, said Sir Clarkson. Oh, I know those parks. They have to answer for shortening the lives of our aristocracy. Take Lady Darnell along the Riviera, letting her see every place that is worth seeing, and then drop quietly down into Italy for the winter. You can take her back to Darnell when the primroses are in bloom, and I pledge my honour she will be a new creature. Well, my dear Alan, this was rather cheering than otherwise. It was comforting to know what is wrong. Poor dear Clare, I do not think it is the dullness of Darnell Park she has felt half as much as the want of sociability upon the part of my old county friends. That has wounded her deeply. Have they been more unsociable than county people usually are? asked the colonel with pardonable hypocrisy. He was very well aware of the fact from Miss Darnell's innuendos and from his own personal observation. The county had given Sir Alan's second wife the coldest reception compatible with civility. "'They are not absolutely uncivil. They would not dare be that to my wife,' said Alan. "'But they have not been cordial. There has been no real friendliness. They take every occasion to let my wife feel that she is not in their own particular set, and she does feel it, more, I believe, for my sake than for her own. She is too proud to court anybody's friendship.' The people all made their duty calls when we came home from our honeymoon, but there was a flavour of duty about the thing which was unpleasant. Then came three or four state dinners to which my wife went, and where she was made to feel somehow by the feminine portion of the party that she was received on sufferance. We gave two or three dinners that winter, at which some of my old friends were present, but there was a suspicious number of previous engagements, and I knew poor Claire felt humiliated at finding it such a difficult matter to make up a party of twenty. Since then we have fallen into the way of living almost entirely alone. The rector and his wife come to us in a friendly way, very often as you have seen. Occasionally I have an old army friend down from London. Young Colchester drops in the luncheon pretty often in the hunting season, and that is about all. Claire never complains, and she is not dependent for her happiness upon society, but I know she feels the slight which is involved for a woman in her position not to be sought out and made much of. In fact, said Sir Alan, waxing savage as was his wont when he touched on this topic, I shall be very glad to get Lady Darnell away from this accursed hole. Grace will go with you, of course, observed the colonel. I had not been thinking of taking her. My dear Alan, she would eat her heart out if you left her alone with Miss Darnell. Those two do not get on well together, certainly, and Grace adores my wife, yet it seems a pity to take her away just at the beginning of the fox-hunting, and after I have bought her that new mare. Grace is so fond of hunting, and young Ted Colchester is so fond of Grace, is that what you were going to say? It is pretty near the truth, I think, and Colchester is a thoroughly good fellow, the only man in the neighbourhood who has shown himself thoroughly staunch and cordial since my marriage. He belongs to a good old family, and he has a fine estate. 
I should be proud of such a son-in-law. And you may have him for a son-in-law if you play your cards properly. Take an old bachelor's advice, Alan. I don't think Gracie cares much for Edward Colchester now. He has been too attentive, too devotive, is too obviously a good match. The first idea of a high-spirited, romantic girl like Grace is generally to throw herself away upon a pauper. If Colchester were a penniless nobody and could only approach her by stealth, I have no doubt she would adore him. But as he is well off, and you have broadly hinted that you would like her to marry him, the natural result is that she despises him. Take her to Italy with you, keep her closely under Lady Darnell's eye, and when she comes back to Darnell, the odds are she will like young Colchester ever so much better than when she went away. She has seen hardly any other eligible young men for the last year and a half, and he has pulled upon her in consequence. Distance will lend enchantment to the view. "'What an old fox you are, Weldon,' said Sir Alan, smiling. "'Yes, I believe you are right. Grace shall go with us, even if the new mare and old Blackie will have to eat their heads off while she is away. Perhaps you'll winter at Darnell and keep the stud in good working order for us.' "'You are too good, my dear fellow,' replied the colonel, inwardly shuddering at the idea of a winter spent with Dora. "'No, I shall stay in town, if I fail in finding a place down here, and after nearly two months I am as far from realizing my ideal hunting box as I was when I first came.' In the drawing-room that evening, Sir Alan was in unusually good spirits. The idea of getting his wife away from Darnell for a good long time was a relief to him. In spite of his perfect happiness in his married life, there were times when he felt the chilling attitude which some of his oldest acquaintances had assumed since his second marriage. Up to that time, he had deemed these people his friends, and now they had been tested, he knew they had never been more than acquaintances. Time had not made them loyal and true. Yes, it was delightful to think of being in a foreign land with his beloved wife, amid strange faces. He felt grateful to Sir Clarkson for having insisted upon Italy. He talked of nothing but their journey. "'Grace, you are to go with us,' he said. "'Your godfather there has promised and vowed for you that you will be very good and give us no trouble, and that you will help me to take care of Clare. So you will have to settle your fine points, as old Capulet says, get all your frocks and fineries ready at a very short notice.' "'How good of you, dear father.' "'You like to go, then,' said Sir Alan, looking at her sharply. "'You don't mind missing the hunting?' Grace blushed at the question, as if it touched a sensitive cord. "'One can have fox-hunting in a year,' she said, "'but not an Italian tour. "'And your Parisian French will be useful to me "'when Claire is not at my side,' said Sir Alan. "'I used to spout Racine when I was a boy, "'and I can read a French novel, "'but I can never hit upon little common phrases "'when I am in a hurry. "'You will have to be ready in less than a week, Grace, "'for as soon as ever I can put my affairs in decent order, "'we will be off. "'Claire is such an orderly person that she is always ready.' "'I have nothing to do but be orderly,' said Lady Darnell, smiling at him. "'Dora takes all household cares off my hands, "'and you never exact anything from me.' "'Yes, I do, my dear. I look to you for the happiness of my life, and you have never disappointed me,' answered Sir Alan tenderly. "'Well, we will start directly I have paid the quarter's accounts, and made things straight with the steward. I dropped in at the bank as we drove to the station and got four hundred in notes to begin the war.' "'Just as Bismarck called in all the gold he could get before he challenged Austria,' said the colonel. "'I used to carry circular notes, but I have found in late years that your British banknote will pass current in most parts of the continent. And I treated myself to a brace of revolvers at Lancaster's, the last refinement in travelling pistols.' "'Prudent man!' exclaimed the colonel. "'You will be quite disappointed if there is no encounter with brigands to bring your firearms into active service.' "'Grace,' said the colonel, turning to his goddaughter, "'if you really mean club-hunting tomorrow, you had better go to bed. It is nearly eleven. "'Of course I mean club-hunting. Do you think I would lose a run now that I am to be away all the season? "'But it hardly seems worthwhile going to bed when one is to get up again at four o'clock. "'Good night, father, and thank you so much for taking me to Italy. It is the dream of life.' It has been the dream of my life, said her aunt, without looking up from her work-basket, but a dream which will never be realized. This was just one of those speeches which make everyone feel uncomfortable and for which there seems to be no appropriate answer. It was the signal for a general departure. Sir Alan, Colonel Stukeley, and Grace were in the saddle before five o'clock next morning and away over the dewy uplands and in and out of dripping copses before six. Grace's new mare behaved beautifully, carried her young mistress as if she had been a featherweight, and evidently reveled in her work. 
Sir Allen took his line, Grace had her own ideas, and the colonel, who was not so familiar with the country, stuck close to Grace, admiring her pretty figure and her dashing horsemanship, and altogether very proud of his goddaughter. Mr. Colchester was as devoted as a master of hounds can be, and a keen observer would have been amused to see the struggle between duty and inclination which tore at his heartstrings every time he had to leave Grace's side in order to direct the instincts of his young hounds. He seemed happiest when the pack was in full cry and he and Grace were galloping side by side across country. Then there were gates to be opened, hedges to be taken first by his heavy hunter, so as to leave a safer jump for Grace, who naturally scorned such old womanish attentions, infinitely preferring to have led the way over the most breakneck point in the fence. Colonel Stukeley kept close to these two all the time, admiring Grace's admirer almost as heartily as he admired Grace herself. And, indeed, Squire Colchester, in his grey coat and black velvet cap, was as pleasing a specimen of a young English landowner as anybody could desire to see. Tall, broad-shouldered, fair-complexioned, with cheery blue eyes and crisp brown hair which would have curled all over his head had it not been kept closely shorn. It was a frank, kindly face, characteristic of the man who was good nature personified, but the firmly moulded lips and square chin told of a resolute temper and a strong will. It was in the course of a second run that an incident occurred which had a startling effect upon Grace and the Colonel. They were crossing a common within three miles of Darnell Park, a picturesque common on the crest of a hill, all hillock and hollow, crowned with a cluster of old Scotch firs. As they galloped over the rugged, uneven ground, a little recklessly on Grace's part, Juno, the new mare, gave a desperate shy for the first time since her mistress had ridden her, and Grace looked round to see the cause of her alarm. A man was lying against a sandy hillock, half buried in the firs, a slender figure in an old velveteen coat, travel-stained, out at elbows, a dark head half hidden in a soft felt hat. As Grace turned to look at him, the man raised himself slowly from his recumbent position and looked round him listlessly, vaguely, as if suddenly awakened, but not in the direction of the young horsewoman, who was still some paces away from the hillock where he sat. Still looking back at him, she gave a faint, half-stifled cry, just as young Colchester came galloping across the common, almost brushing against the man on the hillock, and bore Grace and the colonel along with him, as on the wings of a whirlwind. "'They're running like old boots in the copse,' he cried, pointing with his whip. "'Godfather,' gasped Grace, trying to hold her horse back as they were galloping along a lane, so as not to be heard by the master. "'Did you see that man on the common?' "'The tramp who startled your horse? Yes, I saw him.' "'He is not a tramp. He is Victor de Comaloc.' Oh, how ill and wretched he looked. I should have stopped if that horrid man hadn't come rushing by. Do go back to him. Ask him where he is stopping, why he has come here. Do, Colonel, for my sake. And have you any money about you? Two or three pounds, perhaps. Give him all you have, please, for me. He looked so poor. Come along, Miss Darnell, shouted Mr. Colchester. They've got him. And Grace cantered after him with a little hypocritical laugh, pretending to be delighted at the idea of bloodshed, although she always felt ready to cry at this stage of the entertainment, and told herself that it was too bad and that she would never hunt again, and then, with a charming inconsistency, came out next day. "'The devil!' muttered the colonel as he rode slowly up the hill. "'Here's a pretty kettle of fish.' It was the same classical expression which he had made use of yesterday when Grace told him the story of her engagement, and with the colonel it meant a great deal. This man's presence within an hour's walk of Darnell foreboded mischief. His disreputable appearance indicated a lapse into the lowest depths of poverty, and what generosity or forbearance could be expected from a destitute adventurer. The man held Grace's promise of marriage under her own hand. Could it be supposed that he would not make it an instrument of torture unless he were bought off and got rid of somehow? He was here in the girl's own neighborhood. He would discover the position her father occupied. He would, perhaps, be told of Edward Colchester's devotion to her, of the general expectation that she would marry him. These things were always village gossip long before the principals themselves had made up their minds. If this adventurer were to show Grace's letters to Edward Colchester, her future would be blighted, her father's hopes cheated. It was a detestable entanglement. The colonel could not help feeling angry with Grace as he rode up the hill. To think that a girl could so trifle with fate, out of sheer silliness, could so forfeit self-respect, endanger her reputation, bring pain and discredit upon her parents. The only hope is that if the man is poor, we may be able to buy him pretty cheap, thought the colonel. End of chapter 4